Greetings and welcome to the pod. My name is Mark West. Professor Anthony Blazevic is a professor of biomechanics in the School of Medical and Health Sciences at Edith Cowan University. He is also the head of the Centre for Exercise and Sports Science Research, so is a fabulous person to talk to about biomechanics, body types, and how our physiology affects our ability to move through water. We had an excellent chat on how your stroke influences your time and why we may still see some world records in the pool and in the ocean. He's also conducted some really interesting research on the benefits or not of stretching. We had a bit of a recording issue towards the end of this because I am such a professional and the batteries in my recorder ran out. Anthony sounds great, I sound a bit odd. But no matter, it was a fantastic chat and I started by asking Anthony, as I always do, about whether he is a swimmer. Oh, look, my relationship with swimming is a tough one. It was one of those ones where I always enjoyed swimming. But when I was in high school and decided I'd join the swim team, um, I realized how fast those swimmers were who'd been (laughs) training since they were kids. And, um, you know, I think my swimming uh, coach at the time loved the kicking. So we just did huge amounts of kicking. And as a former sprinter, there is no way I could kick hundreds of meters without just getting completely shattered. So I must admit (laughs) that I... I ended up dropping out of the the swim team and just sticking with basketball, cricket, and athletics. And then um, I kind of came back to it for a while. A, a couple of years later, I was thinking of moving over to triathlons. I'd, I'd sort of cricket was my number one sport as a kid. And I thought, all right, let's start doing the triathlon. So I was swimming four or five times a week, but it never eventuated. You know, I sort of moved universities and then moved back into athletics. And, and that was the end of my swimming career. So it's a checkered past. It's a checkered past. Well, that I can see how then uh a, a sporty person like yourself with a science brain might end up into in biomechanics yeah exactly well you know like a lot of sports yeah, science students I, I i well actually I, I always wanted to do science i knew that i didn't know which science but having such a sport background and and really feeling you know like understanding my body was important sports science was the way to go right but yeah but i must admit like most sports science students i had originally just assumed that i would be a physiologist you yeah, know but yeah. But uh, especially since in, in high school, maths was certainly not my strong point. It's kind of a source of humor amongst my friends that I'm a biomechanist with biomechanics textbooks, and yet I nearly failed maths in high school. But <laughs> I guess that's how it's taught, right? It's all yeah. about the understanding, and maths in high school is not taught like that. So I always loved physics. I always got A's for physics. And, um, and when I got into university, I realized that if I was ever going to actually use strength and conditioning and physical training to improve someone the first thing i needed to know is how we actually move what are the forces what are the ranges of motion what are what are the ways that muscles and tendons and nervous systems work in sync to produce the forces that we produce and and then you know what are the body patterns we need you know in swimming that's a great one because if you're if you're strong so your body will choose a solution to a movement problem based on the goals and the constraints in the task and based on your own capacities, your own constraints. So yeah. if I ask you to throw a ball, you, you'll, you'll end up throwing a ball pretty similar to most humans on earth because you're built like most humans on earth. You know, But the nuance is, is that if I make you a little bit stronger in a leg or an arm or a, a, a chest or a something else, your body will slowly evolve its method in order to optimize yep. you. Yep. So if you're trying to build an optimum robot, I have to know everything about how even the smallest little detail of change in your body will then change the way you move. And as you know, in swimming, the way you move 
is often even more critical than just whether you're strong or not, or it is certainly more critical than just whether you're strong or not. So if you don't understand the biomechanics of a task, I'm not confident that you can properly build the right human to perform well in that task. And so I had to move over to biomechanics. All my questions ended up there. So that's where I ended up. Yeah. And swimming's a really interesting one too, because not only are you optimizing yourself perhaps, but you're optimizing yourself within an environment that's a bit different to running say i mean that's an environment as well but swimming has air liquid waves all sorts of things going on yeah it is literally one of the most enjoyable and frustrating sports to to work within or to think about but yeah i mean how awesome is it it kind of doesn't get any better because you've got everything from how to optimize the human to how to optimize the human within a complex environment and that's when it becomes really cool yeah and so what are some of the interesting things about biomechanics in, in swimming, do you think? I mean, I was, I was reading some of your articles on the conversation and absolutely the, the backstroke video of the guy doing a 50, yeah. 50 meters backstroke in 23 seconds, doing it completely underwater. What are some of the issues that are, that are, that are at play? Well, I think, I think this is why I love swimming so much is everything seems to be counterintuitive and, and counterintuitive to pretty much everything up until the late 80s, early 90s and even how we trained. I mean, According to every other sport, if I can just produce bigger forces in the right direction, I should move faster. That's what Isaac Newton says. That's what Einstein's theories of relativity say. Turns out that in things like swimming, the drag forces are so remarkable that just having a big propulsion can not only not be so advantageous as you think, but actually completely reducing your propulsion, taking your arms out of it, that ability to produce huge forces with big hands with massive drag forces and staying half out of the water i mean water is incredibly dense and as you know drag forces are proportional to the density of the fluid so if you're out of the water surely you'll move faster and i still to this day hear commentators saying oh look at that nice high body position you know that's really effective so they're thinking well it turns out that if you do a pretty wimpy weak dolphin kick but stay under water in this highly dense environment you move faster Straight away, that just makes you think, well, what's going on here? This is a a really remarkable question that we have. And so understanding the flow dynamics, understanding how the body has to move within that liquid environment and then work backwards to, well, now I can think about propulsion because I have to get the drag force correct first. That's that's the bit that I think is really, really interesting And, and interesting to the community that when you write articles like the conversation or you do a presentation and you include a bit of swimming biomechanics, people are usually blown away because it's so counterintuitive. Yeah. And, and even surface chop, that's an interesting one. What, what, what influence does that have? And I imagine it's more in the open water. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, how you swim in the open water has to be very different from how you swim, swim in still water or in pool water And of course, you've also got temperature effects. So obviously in the ocean, you've got salt and uh, salt increases density. So straight away, you've got a more dense medium. When a wave hits you in the ocean, it hits you harder, maybe is the best way to say it. So it's not just that it's choppy. It's that any wave that does hit you is going to have a bigger effect in some way, right? So you've got to really pay attention to that chop. Usually find that the water is cooler. Colder water is more dense as well. So that adds to it as well. And different conditions, you know, if you're swimming in 27 degrees versus swimming in 15 degrees, it just doesn't have a physiological effect. It actually has a useful and meaningful biomechanical effect from drag and lift forces that you have to worry about. And so swimmers kind of have to, you know, we talk about the feel in the water. And I think the best swimmers are practicing in all these different conditions and optimizing their own feel. But of course, any wave that hits you, any wave, that your body moves through where you have to 
then move that wave. When you move the wave, you give energy to that wave. You're breaking the wave, you're spraying water. I mean, that's kinetic energy. And where did it get it from? I mean, it took it from you. So the, the point is that whenever the water is choppy, whenever there are small waves, the most important job that you have is how to minimize the work you do on that chop, the work you do on that wave. And the second thing that you need to think of is that, for example, in a nice, warm pool environment with no waves and no chop, you can glide really nicely because there are very few waves. It's only the wave that you build up at your head or your feet, or for, for those of us who aren't such good swimmers, we might build up a few more waves in our mid-body. But out, out in the chop, you've got waves hitting you all the time, slowing you down. So now we have to use different stroke mechanics because you don't have effective glide. But at the same time, you've got more turbulence at other parts of your body. So then the kick doesn't become so useful. And of course, most of us think that the kick is there to propel us. And that's probably the least important part of that flutter kick. Um, maybe we'll talk about that later. But so everything has to change once you've got that chop. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, the, the kick is, you know, maybe we, we can jump into that. I, I don't know the answer. I don't want to uh, presuppose it. But I, I imagine a lot of the kick is to just keep yourself level. So you're not really drag. The drag is, is acting on less of you. Is that right? That's part of it. Part yes. Of it. Okay. In a good swimmer, that's probably not the key. So yeah. the two the, the two things that most people, I guess, espouse, but are probably not the key. One is that it helps right your body in the water. Because if you produce a downbeat in the kick, that lifts your legs. But of course, that leg still has to come up. And I know that we can bend the leg a bit, reduce the amount of surface area, remove, re reduce the moment of inertia. That's how hard it is to pull up. And that's going to, of course, mean that the downbeat is far more useful than the upbeat. And on average, it might lift you a little bit. But as you probably are aware, the biggest way to right your body is to leave your arm as far outstretched in front of you as you can for as long as you can, because that moves your center of mass forwards towards your center yeah, of buoyancy right. okay. yep. so remember your legs are heavy and whether it's because you've got more body fat here or because you you tend to swim with a slightly um inflated lung because you should because it, it's buoyant force so you, that reduces the need to produce the vertical forces um when you're more buoyant that buoyancy is forward of your center of mass and that causes your legs to dip so if you can move mass further forward by making sure your head stays down rather than up and by keeping your arm outstretched as far as you can, you're now shifting your center of gravity over the center of buoyancy, and that rights you, right? Of course, in the chop, that's a little bit harder, I understand. But the other thing that people sort of say is, oh, when I kick, it propels me. And there is some propulsion. I mean, you, you, you can see that even in a dolphin kick, there's quite significant propulsion. But actually, it's nowhere near what the arms are providing. I mean, it really is a small effect, especially once you kick faster, we think that produces more power. But remember, you're disturbing the water. You've already given it lots of kinetic energy. There's lots of turbulence. And that turbulence means it's less effective to then produce a force against. So if it's less effective to produce a force against because you've made it churned up by kicking faster, you're not actually getting the propulsion you think. Yep. It's more efficient to kick slower when there's less turbulence. And here is probably the, the two key. Let's come back to turbulence in just a second. Sorry, this answer is long, but it will make no. sense because everything comes back to turbulence, right? One reason that we kick and the reason why even in slow kicking, even in slow speed swimming, you'll have some sort of kick. Oh, by the way, I'm only talking about crawl stroke here because, you know, we're talking about mostly open water um, and long distance swimming. So 
um, when when you kick, so when you apply a force into the the water, you apply a downwards and backwards force, and it's usually slightly to the side of your midline, and that causes the body to rotate away from that force. If you rotate too much, then you're actually spending your energy in rotation rather than translation. So we try to keep the body a little bit righted. And the best way to do that is to have a downbeat on the opposite leg at the same time. And so this is why you'll notice that when you do slow speed swimming, you want to do little, little, big, little, little, big, little, little, big. That big always coincides with the downbeat of the arm. So without knowing it, you're already synchronizing your kick to help maintain balance and stabilization in the water and ensure that a, a greater proportion of the pulling force goes into moving you translationally rather than rotationally. So the timing of the kick and the amplitude of the kick is really important for balance in the water. And why do we? one reason we kick harder when we're going faster is the forces are bigger. So you need a, a bigger rotation force, right? But when we swim faster, we don't just kick a bit bigger. We also kick faster. We go from a three-beat kick to a six-beat kick, for example. So why would we kick if it's not really propelling us huge amounts? I mean, it's contributing, but it's not the major factor. And we're kicking more often than we need just to right the body because we're now adding extra kicks between the downbeat. Well, the most likely thing that's going on here is that you're spending extra energy creating turbulence in the water, all those bubbles. That's a waste of energy. That's kinetic energy you're donating to the water that you don't need to give it except for the fact, and here's the other freaky thing about why swimming is always counterintuitive. Once you create turbulence, you reduce pressure. You might, in swimming, people probably always, a lot of times talk about Bernoulli's theorem. May not be the best way to explain things, but it makes sense to us that regions of high velocity flow are associated with low pressure. Um, and regions of low speed flow associated with high pressure. So, when you kick fast, you're creating turbulence. That's increasing the velocity, the local velocity of the water, and that reduces pressure. And if there's no pressure, you can't build up a wave. And wave is such a critical drag factor that if you can simply minimize a wave forming or reduce the size of the wave, you reduce drag by massive amounts. I mean, once we get to very fast swimming, so you know, now we go back to the pool and you're doing a 50-meter sprint or, or you're pushing off from the wall or diving in and you're, you're getting up to those sort of 1.7 to 2 meter per second kind of speeds, wave drag now becomes the biggest form of drag. It's more important than form drag. I mean, there are very few situations where your form drag, and for, for those of you who aren't experts, that's simply the drag caused by the fact that you're a big body moving through a fluid and you're doing work on the fluid, takes energy away from you, you slow down. In bicycling, for example, everything is about that aerodynamic position, aerodynamic bikes. Even runners are using, you know, tight clothing to minimize that drag. And they're the surface drag and the form drag. In your car, we're trying to reduce form drag. That's normally the biggest form of the drag is your form, your shape. In swimming, though, at slow speeds, that's still the case. But as we go faster and faster, the buildup of waves is so critical that at some point, wave drag is even more problematic than the um, the form drag. And so that's why, particularly on starts and turns in the pool, you stay underwater as long as you can. Because when you're staying underwater, you're not able to create the wave. Maybe we'll go into that a little bit more when we talk about propulsion. And minimizing the, the wave drag is absolutely critical. Now, you've usually got the head wave. We can do a few things about that. And we'll talk about that if we talk about the stroke. But you've also got the big wave at the, at the, at the back of the body, the, the, the bow wave. 
And that bow wave is created by a pressure difference between where your body is and the rest of the water. And if you can minimize the pressure difference, you can't push up a wave. So if you kick, you don't push up a wave. Now, when you're swimming slowly, you don't need a big kick. One, because you're not really generating much wave. And two, because stabilization of the body is more important. But once you're moving really quickly, waves build up dramatically. And therefore, you need to bring in a faster kick to reduce the pressure on the bow of your body to minimize that wave buildup. So the combination of appropriate balance of the body and minimizing pressure buildup around the body are probably the reasons why kicking is so effective. And the faster we swim, the faster the kick needs to be. Is that, it got me thinking, we still see a lot of world records in swimming, which yes. it, I find fascinating. You know? yeah. um, and a lot of it then I imagine, is it, is it because of pool design and you know, the lane ropes that, that soak up the waves and that sort of thing? Look, I'm really not, I'm not sold on that. And the reason is because in the last 10 years, lane rope design has been phenomenal anyway. And I'm not aware of any major leaps in pool design. Certainly there were changes in pool design. The way, as the waves spread out, you had edges of the pool now that could take the waves so they didn't reflect. But a lot of that technology has been around for, for a few decades now. And same with lane ropes. So the, when you look at the lane rope, as a, as a, a sideways wave hit it, hits it, it tries to then direct it along the way, the, the lane rope. And that means it can't travel as well uh, into right. the next okay. lane. Yep. Um, you probably, if you watch the World Swimming Championships, you'll still hear the commentators talk about some swimmers sitting as close as possible to the lane rope to get a drag. And that's because there is still some wave coming across which is bad for the swimmers going in the other direction and good right, for the yep. swimmers trying to drag it is quite small but in the last few decades I, i'm not aware of any really big advances there that could that could you know, we're not taking seconds and remember we're now beating all the world records from the super suit era which is quite remarkable it uh, is, isn't it? physiology hasn't changed much and the reason is mostly is the these underwaters and the turns and starts are just so remarkable and even during the swimming, the understanding of fluid dynamics now has allowed certain athletes to really minimize those drag forces and, and swim a lot, lot faster. So I, I would argue that the biggest change in swimming is simply the understanding of the mechanics of, of, of fluid dynamics. That's, that's quite, um, I don't know, that, I mean, that, 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 that's a big statement, isn't it? Do, do, you think, <laughs> yeah. do you think there's further to go then? I mean... There, there always is. Yeah. I mean, there's always further to go because... As, as more talent rises, as we get more countries that, that now have the money to start competing in sports like swimming, remember that's an expensive sport, you know, swimming, cycling, tennis, you know, these are costly sports. But as people are brought out of poverty around the world, we're going to get more genetic talent come in. And that, of course, means we're going to get faster athletes just by random chance. But the second thing is, is that those athletes can now be designed slightly differently. So now the optimum strength and conditioning practices, the optimum physiology, the optimum biomechanics now has to change. And we have to learn how to adapt that to the new body shapes that we're going to start seeing in swimming. The, as they change their suit designs, which of course have, you know, stops on them, but suit, even, even after the super suits were lost, there's been advances in suit design within those rules. And that then affects how you might swim. And just the fact, I mean, the other day at the World Swimming Championships, you had the, the women really, the four, was it four by one or four by two, completely smashed the world record. I mean, by a long way. I mean, that's, that shows you that we're still making very significant leaps, you know, in, in our understanding of swimming and then understanding of how we can get the athletes to adopt the appropriate techniques. Because it's one thing to have some idea about the fluid dynamics. 
It's another thing to actually get swimmers swimming in a certain way. And that involves everything from your strength and conditioning understanding to balancing endurance versus you know, high speed work in the pool to understanding the taper to um, understanding how to optimize it for every individual who has a slightly different body shape. So there's just so many little bits right now that we still don't know. I think we've still got a few decades of advance left at least. That's that's fascinating. And I, I think it rings true, doesn't it? I mean, swimming seems to be participated by uh, in by you know a subset of countries it feels like there's a lot of expansion to go you never know what we might find in the future exactly exactly right yeah it's exciting it is and and so some of the some of the um ideas you mentioned to me uh in in the email like ideas like porpoising through the waves and and that type of thing um do you have any general thoughts on sort of ocean swimming and how you should how you should do it compared to the pool yeah, look, I, I, I mean, there are some general thoughts. I mean, the first one, when you talk about porpoising, you know, I, I tend so that that's where you would sort of do this. And certainly when you're diving under waves. So, of course, we just heard about wave drag. I mean, imagine if you've actually got a huge wave that's coming at you at a velocity. So you've now got an energy, an energy in the water that is negative, And you've got an energy, you've got kinetic energy, and you're in the positive direction. A positive and a negative cancel out. So if you hit a wave, it slows you down, right? You give energy to that wave. And it takes it, laughs at you, and waves goodbye. Right. So the, the the as you already know that when you go into the water at the beach, and if you're having to do a triathlon or an open water swim, or you're a surf lifesaver and you're doing an open swim, you porpoise underneath the wave, and that allows the wave, the major energy of the wave, to pass you by. Underneath there is still some energy. So your um, listeners who have been under the waves know that if you can go really deep under it you miss a lot of that churning turbulence that can also take energy away from you. Remember, turbulence takes energy away from something. And then you pop up. What's really interesting, what, what occurred to me maybe 10 years ago when I was working with some, some surf lifesavers is that as long as the waves are coming at some reasonable um, space, we had one swimmer who had come from the pool and was really exceptional. And of course, as you saw in that video of the backstroke, it's not unusual for a swimmer to be able to swim 50, 60 meters underwater and hold their breath. And so what this swimmer started practicing was literally diving under and just staying in that porpoise position, regardless of whether there was a wave, because it means instead of going down and coming up, which increases the distance of travel, and instead of sort of having to then be on top of the water where you're creating wave jag and where there's churn, they just stayed basically on the bottom and just swam straight out. Now, the other thing you've got to remember is that water that's coming in with the wave, I mean, a wave that hasn't broken actually is a vertical wave. It actually is the vertical motion of the water. Mm -hmm. But once it gets too high, the, the actual momentum of the wave is traveling this way. And as it starts to break, the water is actually moving in, in a certain direction. That water has to get back out, of course, right? And that's where we form rips. So there are certain channels where it will come out. And obviously, smart people go to the rip and use the outward pull. The other place that it goes is deep. Is down, so you have yeah. the high the high is moving in one direction, the low is moving in the other direction. So if you're porpoising or if you're staying underneath the water by a bit over a meter or so, not only are you reducing your own wave drag, but you might be able to make use of that underwater current. And this is where doing some reconnaissance before yeah. a swim is really useful is you can find out where you feel the greatest pulls. And so this idea of these fantastic swimmers who've really practiced that porpoising over years, they're really good at the dolphin kick, and then they can actually stay under for several waves in a row can really gain an advantage. I'm actually not sure why in elite open water swimming, that's not a far bigger 
tactic that's being used because in elite swimming where you're pretty much a full-time swimmer you've got time to practice those skills quite remarkably by the way i'll just i'll just hint to you here while you're underwater you're not breathing you know yep. so you you know, in the pool, <laughs> yeah i mean in the pool the 1500 meter swimmers literally can't stay underwater too long because the loss of breath is more is is yep. more costly than the gain from staying underwater for so long but Remember, we're talking about you run down, you know, 15 meters into the water and you're fresh and you can porpoise. And it's not hard to porpoise for 50 meters. And if you gain a lot, you'll easily recover that when you get up and you start breathing and you're nice and relaxed in your swimming stroke. You'll overcome that. We, this fast start idea is used in lots of sports and we know it's actually physiologically okay to do. That's, that's, that's a really fascinating idea. Yeah, no, I mean, not the, I mean, I've only ever seen pretty amateur sort of stuff, but yeah, nobody really stays underwater for that long. You, you see some lovely technique diving in and being streamlined. And I haven't, I haven't seen the very long underwater start before. Yeah, no, idea. I haven't been used. I don't see why not. I mean, again, you have to be very good at it. So it'll be someone who's practiced a lot or it'll be a, a high-level pool swimmer who can come across and has really done years of training at it and they should be absolutely able to smash it. Although I'd still love to see people who are only average at it. I, I haven't, there's no data on it either. So if we... Maybe we need to do some research studies. We'll do some where research. We... <laughs> we set something up. This sounds a good idea. <laughs> right. Maybe all your, we can set it up across the world with all, all the people on the internet doing, you know, doing their own experiments and we'll see what happens. It's not a bad idea. <laughs> Get some research funding somehow. A bit of crowdfunding. Um, <laughs> so, and, and one of the other things you mentioned was um, finger spacing. And I remember this is a really interesting topic. I remember that from my, from my youth as, a, as people telling me to keep my fingers together. But then I'd heard other people say, well, no, actually, that's not the best idea. What, what do you think? It's not the best idea. No. Okay. Um, and, well, the, the reason is because the, the pri primary force that allows you to propel yourself is the drag force. There, there can be small amounts of lift. This idea that you do a big S and get lots of lift is, um, is not, not correct, by the way. It's definitely the case that for efficient swimming, pulling almost straight, there is a little bit of movement of maybe fine still water, and that can also create a small amount of lift. But remember, if you do this in the water, not only is that a lateral energy, even though it creates a translational or forward propulsion, there's also drag, there's, there's turbulence. So you, if, you, if you're doing that, that's also a big problem. So you're better off with drag and the drag is proportional to your surface area. So the bigger the surface area, the better. That's one reason why tall people with big hands may have an advantage in swimming. Um, when, when the hand goes through the water though, if you've got very, very small gaps here, because water is viscous, it stiffens effectively as it goes faster. And it, you, you, if you try and force lots and lots of water through this little gap, it actually slows down because it stiffens as it gets compressed going through it. So as long as that gap is very small, you don't get lots of water flowing through there. It, it almost sits in front of you like a ball and you start carrying that water with you. And so by having a small finger spacing, you're effectively slightly increasing the surface area of your hand. What's really interesting though, too, is that as the hand goes through water, it creates a new sort of stream of, of water. Now, the research that I've seen doing flow dynamics on hand propulsion usually finds that at the first half, the propulsive part of the stroke, having relatively close fingers and relatively close thumb is probably more effective. You might use a very slight cup rather than this where water slides off, so a slight cup. But generally, closer appears to be better in all the mathematical modeling and all the sort of some people use modeling where they literally build a model and pull it through and measure the drag forces. 
But as we go past, the way the hand is in the water, it turns out that it's more effective to have the thumb in particular further away. And that's been shown in multiple studies that, that thumb moving the thumb away can be very effective. It may not be as effective on that first glide because it increases the surface area. But once you're pulling, early pull might be a little bit down, but the late pull, bringing the thumb out seems to be much more effective. What, what I find interesting in one of my lectures in biomechanics to my students, I found that in, um, I, you, obviously, Mark Spitz, an absolute freak in 1972, well before all this was out. I mean, back in the early 70s, He'd just gone through the councilman years in 1960s. He came out saying, actually, now I know why the hand looks like it travels laterally. That's the, the lift force. We should all train laterally. But if you look at Mark Spitz, he actually moves his hand almost in a straight hand path. And what you see is when he enters the water, he's definitely got the thumb close. And then as he pulls, you see the thumb come away. And I found that remarkable that such an exceptional athlete had already decided not to just keep the hand like this back in the early 70s. Not only that, but the most recent research in the last 10 years says that the back part pulled the thumb away and he was doing exactly that in the early 70s. You can see these photos of Mark Spitz doing it. So the last World Swimming Championships, I had a bit of a look and a lot of the swimmers are definitely keeping that thumb away. Now, what I will say is, first of all, a little bit of cup, a tiny bit of finger spacing and potentially having the thumb away in some direction. You also every once in a while see swimmers just pull their pinky in a little bit. You know, in, in, in high-level swimming, we just take a lot of lactates and a lot of heart rates, and we say, right, as lactate and heart rate varies, as you do different finger spacings, if we get enough data, we can kind of optimize your finger spacing for you. But if you're in the pool and you don't have access to all that, you can either just check a heap of times or maybe just do it by feel. Do I feel more relaxed? Do I feel like I'm catching more water when I do this different hand spacing? And just play around with it. That's a fascinating idea. How much difference do you think it makes? Do you know what? I can't tell you off the top of my head. I'm assuming that it's somewhere in the orders of, um, you know, one or two seconds over 50 meters. So it's going to That's be significant lot. enough to be meaningful. Yes. But I haven't actually seen a data that has back calculated the time advantage because they're always just quoting their, you know, their coefficients of drag or the actual propulsive force. Now the propulsive force might help us then figure out the benefit, but we don't know the drag force on you and we don't know the water dynamics. And so it then makes it really hard to predict. So it's small, but it is meaningful, very meaningful. Yeah, I mean, that's quite a lot. And that's another example of just things we need. We're still, dis well, maybe not still discovering, it's been discovered now, but they're still discovering about swimming. I, I find that so fascinating, really. It is, it is, it is yeah. really fascinating. One of your other articles that I loved was on stretching. Oh, yeah. Throwing this at you. To stretch or not to stretch? What yeah, that's not even a question. <laughs> I mean, it really frustrates me. Uh, so first of all, let, let, I'll, I'll try and be quick, but I just want to give you a little bit of history, right? So uh, in World War II, everyone was trying to train soldiers. They realized that they were sort of getting injured and they weren't performing well and that if you did some sort of dynamic stretching warm-up before they did all their stuff, the soldiers got less injured and performed better. So we did these sort of dynamic forms of stretching that you might see in the old videos. That then became part of PE programs, particularly in Canada and, and, and the USA. So all of North America adopted it and the world started maybe doing a bit of that too. So dynamic stretching. The problem was a lot of clinicians and a lot of so-called experts or doctors, GPs, uh, military personnel, 
were still finding that people were getting a bit of injury and they were injuring or getting sore during the warm-up itself. So those dynamic uh, warm-up exercises weren't necessarily reducing injury the way they thought. And then they thought, well, that makes sense. You, you stretch a muscle rapidly, you get a stretch reflex or you're activating a muscle you're trying to stretch, that's going to put it under load. It's surely going to injure you. So then um, when, when, when people kind of realized that maybe this dynamic stuff too early in a warm-up or too early in the day wasn't ideal – we all move to static stretching, you know, where we're passive and we're relaxed. And the idea is to get rid of all that stretch reflex. All of a sudden people realize that you can actually stretch really quite far. People started running studies, finding that both acutely, so immediately after the stretch and over longer term, passive or static stretching was really effective. And that took over as the mode of stretching. And and, and there was there is actually some very early evidence from, say, the 1980s in you know football, soccer and stuff that it was helping to minimize injury risk, that People who were more flexible certainly were at less risk of injury, as long as you weren't hyper or over-flexible. So there's, there is, and even today, there is actually a pretty good relationship between, you know, being too inflexible and having high injury risk across different sports. Um, and people even started to find that teams or groups of teams that were stretching more tended to have fewer injuries. And that sort of built this sort of idea that stretching is really good for you. Of course, the more recent data says that as far as all-cause injury, stretching is really having no advantage from an injury perspective. But I think this is where the problem comes, is the way studies are designed and who they're done in, and that there are so few of them, leads us to believe, therefore, that stretching isn't affecting injury. What we do know is in, well, what a number of us who've gone through all that data multiple times and written review papers about it, it um, we believe that the data says that there is a small to moderate reduction in Muscular tenderness injuries um, or soft tissue injuries like muscle strains and maybe ligament sprains, particularly in running-based sports. So that's not necessarily in swimming. So in swimming, we don't have much evidence that the stretching is going to reduce some of the injuries that you might see in swimming. Um, so for swimmers, it may not be actually for injury prevention, but just in case you love running and you love playing football or soccer or Aussie rules or whatever it is, actually there is some evidence that it reduces muscle injury risk. So then the other point is performance. Well, of course, if you can move through a nice range of motion and swimming, of course, a long stroke is really beneficial. Static stretching, passive stretching is much better than dynamic stretching for acutely and in the long term, improving range of motion. Therefore, we should still do it. And then people realize, well, yeah, but the effects of stretching don't last too long. And to be honest, we've also found out that if you stretch for too long, your ability for your muscle to develop force is actually reduced. So for example, on average, if we stretch for more than about one minute on a muscle, you can be pretty sure you're going to lose a few percent in performance. And actually, I can tell you that the effect can be really remarkable. That if you do, for example, five one-minute really high-intensity stretches, we've had people in the lab lose more than half of their force capacity. So they are now only producing 30 or 40% of their maximum. Other people are still producing 70%. But that is a massive force loss. And because of that force loss, people say, do not do stretching, no static stretching. And so they said, do dynamic stretching. And I always find that interesting because I'm not sure that in any other area of science or medicine would that be allowed. Now, by the way, my bias, I do static stretching and I do dynamic stretching. I use dynamic stretching in athlete populations. So just hear me out here. Why if clinicians, although there weren't randomized controlled trials, so it was sketchy evidence at best, but if lots of apparently expert clinicians are saying, we're getting injured in our warmups, we think it's the dynamic stuff, let's switch to static, let's switch to the passive stretching, and after that, you no longer have these clinicians saying, oh, we're seeing lots of problems in the clinic. 
why 50 years later with no scientific evidence with no evidence at all would you then bring it back because you're worried about static stretching being a problem that's like saying there was a drug in the 60s that we saw a lot of mental health issues with. Now, we couldn't do the research because how do you get ethical approvals to study a drug that's clearly causing problems in the clinic? And then 50 years later, we say, actually, this drug could be good. Let's bring it back in. I don't know that anyone in medicine who would do it for risk of getting sued. So I just want to remind people that when you're saying bring back dynamic and static is bad, the history suggests that's not a good idea unless you've got evidence. So what is the evidence? Well, the evidence is quite poor. If you don't do a warm-up, so if you sit around, do like a vertical jump or a sprint or a quick swim, and then I give you a heap of static stretching, you perform more poorly. No kidding. <laughs> I mean, first of all, all you've done is sat around, so you've lost any temperature effect. We know that long-duration stretching is problematic, at least for a good 10 or 15 minutes. And then you compare it to a dynamic stretching so now you're motivated, you're activating muscles, you're increasing muscle temperature, and maybe you get a bit more flexible, you perform far better. So people believe, therefore, that dynamic stretching is better than static stretching. But 98% of that research is done using the experimental design where there is no warm-up or no effective warm-up done. So when we go into athlete populations, and we're not the only ones who've done this, and we do an actual full effective warm-up, it doesn't matter whether you did static stretching or dynamic stretching toward the start of that. We cannot see a performance effect at all. That doesn't mean that out in the big bad world there isn't. We just can't detect it under our like scientific conditions in the lab. What I will tell you is that any person who did the stretching feels more prepared. So they feel psychologically like they're more ready to perform. So I always say, well, if there's a potential reduction in injury in some sports, if there's no effect on actual performance, but mentally they feel more prepared, why wouldn't you do it? Now, when it comes down to swimming, so by the way, we've already, we've even determined why this happens. And it turns out your spinal cord gets set down. So there's a little amplifier in your spinal cord that's down-regulated if you stretch for too long. But that takes a good 45 seconds or a minute to start down-regulating it. Basically, if your stretching is enough to make you feel relaxed, that reduces that noradrenergic drive and promotes the, the calm parasympathetic drive. Once you do that, that also shuts off an amplifier in your spinal cord. And it's that which gives us these big force reductions. So if you're doing stretches to the point where you're not feeling nice and relaxed, you're just doing your stretches as part of your warm up, you're not gonna find a performance decrement. We leave the long stretches for somewhere else. Swimmers have to have a really nice flexibility. As you know, you can do that in separate sessions. So in the warm-up then, I would argue that swimmers can do some static stretching. It allows you to mentally prepare. It allows you to feel if you've got tightness. It allows you to feel like you're going to be able to stretch better. You're more mentally prepared. As long as those stretches aren't too long and as long as you're incorporating them as, as part of a full swim-specific warm-up, you're going to have no problem and you may even see a benefit. So that's where we're at so far. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. It's really interesting though, isn't it? I mean, it's maybe not counterintuitive because I don't know, it, it's just something that, that's been passed along from generation to generation that we just take it red, but mm -hmm. uh, it's not necessarily the case. That, I think that's really interesting. Oh, we're very good at taking things as they used to be and we're not so good at really interrogating. The other thing about humans is that we form biases very quickly 
And the evidence you have to see to overcome that bias is really extraordinary. So what it requires is everyone to just assume that they actually are wrong to start with. I'm yeah, doing this yeah. now. These are the practices I follow. I'm very confident in those practices. Remember, the mental side is really important. But at any point, I'm willing to accept that something was wrong and something else might be better. That doesn't mean you leap around and try a million things. That's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. But when you see overwhelming evidence, you either have to make the switch or at least because swimmers are often doing very repetitive stuff, which is great in the pool, you can trial it yourself. Grab the data on you as an individual and figure out for you whether something is actually better or not for you. And then you do what works for you and be damned everyone else. And that's what the best athletes in the world do. You know, the reason yeah. why they're doing something a bit different is because they've figured out what works perfectly for them. The next one is you know, what people call PAP or post-activation potentiation. That's, that's another area of research where the research design has not been appropriate to make the conclusions, to draw the conclusions that have been drawn. So PAP is where you do a, a small amount of high-intensity exercise, and we think that makes us do really, really well. Um, and the idea was that in your muscle cells, you've got this little mechanism, and if you activate the, the muscle cells first, at least your fast-twitch fibers, they'll be stronger briefly afterwards. And, and, and then we do these applied studies in humans. And we often find actually that if we do some slower, heavier lifting, for example, in the gym, we're then a bit more powerful. Although what's interesting about those studies is you don't see the effect for at least several minutes, you know, five to nine minutes after, which all, all of a sudden should ring alarm bells that it's not PAP because this little PAP mechanism is true. It, it is a, a, a true physiological mechanism. Um, in real life, it probably plays a very small role in how muscles um, behave because so many factors affect your force production. And this is one tiny part of it. Um, the second thing to remember is it's only in fast twitch muscle fibers. Your slow twitch are already awesome. And it's not that doing this thing really helps you. This PAP thing really helps you. It's that the fast twitch fibers need PAP to function normally. So it's actually just getting your, your fibers functioning normally. It's not some amazing amplification system that you've got if you're a good fast twitch beast. Um, third of all, actual classic PAP in the muscle cell is very easy to evoke. You don't need to do much. So your warm-up is probably doing it anyway. And second of all, it only lasts for about 30 seconds. It's half-life is less than 30 seconds. So if you wait a minute or two, that specific effect is gone. So this idea that in warm-up, you know, minutes later, we're seeing an advantage clearly means it's a different mechanism. We shouldn't be calling it PAP. A lot of people now call it PAPE, post-activation performance enhancement. I still don't think that's an appropriate term because it's really just warm-up. And what, what we've actually done in our lab, and we're going to publish these data soon, is if we give someone task-specific warm-up, they improve massively. If we then give them very specific additional warm-up to increase muscle temperature, maybe they improve a bit more because temperature is so important. But if we give them a different task, exactly the same movement pattern, but now just low velocity and heavy, they actually lose performance. They go back to baseline. So by performing a few non-velocity specific movements, you then lose that advantage of the specific warm-up, and it takes several minutes for that to respond. In other words, what we think has happened in all these studies, because they don't do the specific warm-up, is that they don't do much of a warm-up. They do this cool activity, and it takes them forever to see the advantage. And what we've shown is that if you had have done a better warm-up, and then you do the slow, heavy stuff, you're simply coming back to where you were. 
And so therefore, this is actually not a good idea. A lot of the research is showing if you had to done, say, plyometric stuff, it happens quickly and you get the advantage quickly. And we're like, well, exactly, because it's motor pattern specific and it's increasing temperature. So all the evidence we have, and we've been measuring everything from intramuscular temperatures to the amount of water sitting in your muscle to how your brain, and we've even stimulated the motor cortex and found that if we give you some fast ones, your, your, your spinal pathway is really excitable. And we just give you a couple of slow ones, immediately you lose it. So we can even see the nervous system responding negatively. So the wash up is don't worry about all the PAP stuff you're reading. Just do a very sport specific fundamental warm up that targets both your aerobic energy systems as well as your technique. Because in the end, practicing perfect technique is going to be more important to you than even raising your muscle temperature and just about anything else you will do. So that's, that's one. We've got data coming out on that, and hopefully we'll be able to kind of show people where we've sort of taken the wrong end of the stick. Got some other studies in how muscles function that we think will completely change how we work. And at the moment, we're really looking at dynamic muscle function. So we put multiple ultrasounds along muscles, and in real time, we watch how the fibers are rotating and shortening. We're trying to understand why some people are more powerful than others, why with aging we lose power. And we're really finding some unique aspects to how the muscles function dynamically that we didn't really know before. So we're really keen to see that data get published. We just got paper accepted this morning, so that was really nice news. And so in the next few years, we'll be chasing this, this muscle function idea of, of what are the aspects that actually help the muscle contract more forcefully and how's that affected by everything from you know rest to aging to disease to sports training, eccentric, concentric training, for example. On, on the warm-up idea, so is, I mean, just in general then, is it just about getting the blood flowing and getting oxygen to your, to your muscles and that sort yeah. of thing? There are multiple things. So in swimming, even the shortest races have a big physiology component, right? So even if you're doing a maximal effort for more than 20 seconds, your aerobic system has to start contributing reasonable energy to that, um, which means the faster you can ramp that up, the less deficit you have like a, the oxygen deficit the energy deficit so if you can get your aerobic system working really really well you can actually do a sprint better than you otherwise would this is not necessarily the case for efforts that are about six or so seconds long but once they're getting 15 20 30 seconds even they are so in even in sprint swimming your aerobic system is important and of course if you've already taxed it briefly, then when you recover and then try and tax it again, it ramps up very quickly. And so this idea of effectively priming your aerobic system as a warm-up is really important. I think there are data says it takes at least five minutes of, of activity before you finally got it up. Those of you who read the research will be reading for things like VO2 fast component, VO2 slow component. Then you've got muscle temperature. Remember a five or six percent power improvement is found from just about a one degree increase in temperature now your muscles at rest sit something like 35 and a half degrees and it's not hard to get them working at 37 37 and a half degrees so in other words we can with warm-up get you at least one or two degrees warmer in the muscles that's like a 10 15 percent benefit depending on the, the and the faster is your cadence so sprint swimming the more effect we have. So in sprint cycling, sprint swimming, more effect than at slow cadences, slow speeds, even if you're moving quickly. So, you know, 10%, that's, that's massive. 
And of course, the neurological. I mean, we've shown everything from the corticospinal tract to just the EMG we see at the muscles, you know, the muscle activity we can, we can record. Literally doing maximal efforts and using perfect technique are the keys. Just really quickly, there's one study that I absolutely love about specificity, right? You know, you think that if you've swum for 10 years, you should be able to jump in the pool and on the day be good. Or when you're in warm-up, it's really physiology. Oh, I'm trying to warm my muscles. I'm trying to get my aerobic system up and, you know, I just swim because I swim. There's one really cool study by Klassen in 1998. He, he stimulated one region of the brain and made the thumb move. Right? That's all that happened. And then he just did contractions. He did 300 contractions. You probably don't need to, but it's also not hard to make 300 strokes in a warm-up in swimming. And he just made people voluntarily practice in the wrong direction. And, and keeping the stimulator in exactly the same place, he stimulated again. But instead of this happening, now this happened. In other words, if you have a certain pathway that does a certain task, and then you do something that's very similar but a bit dissimilar, that exact same activation of your motor cortex will actually now give you the wrong movement. It won't give you the movement that you had originally had there. And so what we know from these types of studies is that if you're performing something quite similar, but not the same, then when you try to do the technique that you want to do, it will actually get it wrong. In that study, it took about 20, 25 minutes for that, that phenomenon to reverse. You, you may have, some of your listeners will know the same thing if they're triathletes, for example. So they're listening to your podcast to swim better, but they jump off a bike and they don't feel like they run well. Yeah. And this is exactly the same problem. It's a motor pattern interference effect. In other words, in warm-up, you have to use the perfect technique. Right? Yeah. You have yeah. to practice it. If you practice slightly the wrong technique, then when you jump in the water and try and swim with the right technique, for at least some time period, it will not be the right technique that you had wanted. So I would argue you've got your aerobic systems, you've got muscle temperatures and a bit of muscle water, I won't go into that, and you've got optimization of motor patterns and activation. And to me, that third one is actually the real key to, to effective warm-up, at least in any kind of sport where you need power. So sure, in a 20K open water swim, maybe not the most important thing, but when you're doing these you know, 500 metres open swims, couple of kilometre open swims, I, I would argue that perfect warm-up is essential. Is that something we're going to see in training, almost like taking a drug, but but having neurological stimulation. <laughs> Look, at the moment, it sounds sexy, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. even in the US, the military has these helmets that stimulate. Look, uh, the, the research on that actually isn't very good. And there's a lot of um, publication bias. If you do some cool stimulations and it works really well, it's easy to get published. If you do some cool stimulations and nothing happens, people say, ah, oh, you just didn't do it right. You know, so there is a bit of publication bias. Like it's definitely the case though. And we, it happens a lot more in the clinical world around stroke and spinal cord rehab where, if we stimulate one, the brain down a certain pathway and at the same time we peripherally stimulate or we voluntarily try to activate, they sort of meet in the spinal cord. You've got this meeting of the, the and that seems to stimulate better pathways and so we can relearn tasks better. There's also some evidence when you're learning a new task that we can just put big electrodes, you know, these instead of stimulating a certain part, you just put them across your brain and change the electric current across your brain. And there are some studies that show that we might learn tasks, manual motor tasks a bit better. But I, to be honest, there's a, there are as many studies showing nothing as there are showing something. And then when it comes to actual physical performance in otherwise unimpaired individuals, so 
anyone who is able to actually swim and doesn't have a neurologic deficit that's really problematic, like spinal cord injury or stroke, I mean, uh, I'm not talking just about a CP or something like this, at least at this stage. Um, I, I've never seen any evidence that adding that to a warm-up is enhancing performance in any way. If it's going to work, it might be for something like shooting or archery, where having complete stillness is so important that if you can change the sort of excitability of a brain region, you might calm everything down in the motor system and allow more accuracy. So if we're going to see it, could be more in that realm, I would argue. Oh, it's an interesting idea that, that your brain can take you many places, right? You can think about all these sorts of things. It's fast, it's, it's fascinating. It is. Um, and your spinal cord. Remember, if you stretch too much, cord. it's your spinal cord that, that suffers. If you're anxious, it's your spinal cord that makes things overactive too, not just your brain. If you, if you use all your meditation and calming, it's affecting your spinal cord and your spinal cord learns. All these reflexes come back to your spinal cord. Remember, your spinal cord is your original brain, right? Evolutionarily, it was your first brain. Yeah, okay. When we do yeah. strength training, a lot of the reason we get stronger are the changes in your spinal cord, the reflex pathways, the, the motor pathways, the, the complex organization in your spinal cord changes that allows us to generate more force. This amplifier that I was telling you about Literally, as I said, I mean, it contributes more than half of your ability to activate your muscles. In yeah. aging, we've now shown that this amplifier is getting lost with aging. And we've also shown that strength training can help to reset that amplifier. So, yes, it's not just the brain, it's the spinal cord. And we've got to get this whole central nervous system firing properly. I definitely heard that strength training is an important thing, especially for men as they get older, but I didn't connect it to spinal cord. Exactly. You need your spine to work. You've got to have some spine in older age. You've got to have some that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Ah, I love it. That's so interesting. Thank you very much to Professor Anthony Blazovic for a wonderful chat, for putting up with my sound issues, and for giving me so much time. If you'd like any more information on anything you've heard today, then get over to the website at www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net. And from there, you can find links to Anthony's articles. I realize the end of February is a bit late to be bringing out the first podcast episode for the year. And I think I promised an extra one at the end of last year as well. My excuse for the delay? Well, it's life. Thanks again. I'll catch you next time on the pod.